you know the lady that's been coming pretty much every Sunday? She's usually over here. She's up here. Her name is Sparkles. That's her nickname, I assume. Uh, she's homeless, but we see her here a lot. She's here a lot during the week. Debbie ministers to her a lot during the week. She comes and gets stuff. Uh, she's here almost every Sunday, at least for a little bit. Um, I just want to encourage you to be as gracious to her as you can be. Um, you know, it's an opportunity for us to practice Christian kindness with her. I will let you know that she is, uh, we are working at finding some help for her. And uh, we've connected her with the homeless outreach team. And we're going we're gonna to really work hard to find her a place to live and all those kinds of things. But she seems a little bit at least comfortable with us here. So let's just take advantage of that opportunity. I just want to encourage all of you, while she's not here, I don't want to embarrass her. Um, just be kind to her and greet her when you see her. Uh, she's a little bit uncomfortable being touched, as Carl found out a few weeks ago. But uh, nevertheless, let's just be, let's just be careful um, and uh, purposeful about ministering to her, okay? Just, uh, just a little admonition for my brothers and sisters here this morning. You know, you occasionally read about churches or church members in various places who have battles over various things, some of which are important and worth debating about, and uh, others clearly not. And unfortunately, church feuds are not uncommon. Some of us have uh, experienced them uh, in various places. They're bad enough when a few individuals fuss about something, but when you have factions develop in a church and people start taking sides, it's worse still. Worse even than that is when you have the pastor and the worship leader or the choir director get into a disagreement. And when that happens, stand aside, there's going to be trouble. I have a fictional example of that happening, and uh, believe it or not, all these hymn titles that I'm going to mention are real hymns. One week a pastor preached on commitment and how we should dedicate ourselves to service, and then the choir director led the choir in singing the hymn, I Shall Not Be Moved. The next Sunday, the preacher preached on giving and how we should gladly give to the work of the Lord, and the choir director then led the song, Jesus Paid It All. The next Sunday, the preacher preached on gossiping and how we should watch our tongues, and the hymn was, I Love to Tell the Story. Well, the preacher was getting a little bit disgusted about this trend over this situation, and the next Sunday he told the congregation he was considering resigning, and the choir then sang, oh, why not tonight? <laughs> and when the preacher resigned the next week, he told the church that Jesus had led him there, and Jesus was leading him away, and the choir then sang, what a friend we have in Jesus. <laughs> Fictional story somewhat humorous, but relationships in the body of Christ are no laughing matter. We could make a case that the quality and the character of our relationships with each other are a sign to the outside world. They're an example of the gospel at work in our daily lives. The Apostle Paul certainly thought so too. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to begin with verse 1 and read through verse 3. Paul wrote the Ephesians, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What a great admonition, isn't that? Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul doesn't just ask us to do this without any additional application. He gives us a couple of very practical examples on how we can do this here. And in many other places in Scripture, he provides clear application of this principle, often using two key words, one another, one another. Our life together is to be focused first on Christ, but in Christ we maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace by paying attention to, seeking to grow in, what for the sake of this morning's message I'm going to call one another-isms. We're going to look at several one anotherisms. We actually see the word one another used in this passage once in Ephesians when Paul tells us to bear with one another. But he also implies three additional one anotherisms in the verse 2. Can you pick those out? Though he doesn't use the words one another related to these three, it's clear that, for example, our humility is to be toward one another. Our gentleness is to be with one another. Our patience is toward one another. So he doesn't use the words, but the implication is clear. In pondering this passage, I began to think about the many times we see this two-word combination in the New Testament and how the frequency of this indicates the importance that God must attach to how we relate to one another. It's so important that God inspired the writers of Scripture to be very specific and to provide for us many specific examples of how we are to relate to one another, our fellow believers, and in many cases to the rest of the world. I did a search of Scripture in preparation for this message, and I came up with 37 different one another-isms. And I don't believe that my search reveals the entirety of what God's Word actually has to say on this theme. That's because, again, I found many verses where, depending on which translation you're looking at, the word one another was assumed rather than stated as such. For example, in one of the verses I looked at, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, which included an additional one anotherism, also stated, live in peace. It's assumed by the context that this means live in peace with one another. There are other verses where the idea of living in peace with one another is stated very explicitly with the actual words one another. For example, in Mark chapter 9, verse 50, it says, be at peace with one another. In a few cases, my search included the terms each other, those words. I didn't do a thorough search with those words, which can mean virtually the same thing as one another. I'm convinced that if I had done so, and it expanded my search to include the words each other, that I'd find even more one anotherisms than the 37 that I came up with in my search. So the study I did included only those verses that actually use those words, one another. And because of that, again, I think I can say fairly confident that there are at least, that's the uh, emphasis there, there are at least 37 different one anotherisms in the New Testament. Now, what does that fact mean to us? Again, I think this must be pretty important, pretty central to how we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Most of the one anotherisms that I found 
are expressed positively. In other words, they say, do this. But there are seven of them that are expressed negatively. In other words, they say, don't do this. So as Paul instructed us in the passage of Ephesians that we just read here at the open just a moment ago, bear with me for a few minutes while I share with you, I tell you these at least 37 different one anotherisms that I found in the New Testament. And as, you, as we look through these, let the force of these sink in as you listen or read on the screen. I found bear with one another. As we already mentioned, be at peace with one another. Wash one another's feet. Love one another. Now there's 14 times I found that phrase, specifically using the words one another. Live in harmony with one another. Build one another up. Welcome or accept one another. Instruct one another. Found greet one another. Wait for one another. Care for one another. Agree with one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Now, of course, this is different from bearing with one another. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Be tender-hearted toward one another. Submit to one another. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Admonish one another. Abound in love for one another. I guess you could say that's the same as love, but it's kind of emphasizing it even more strongly. Encourage one another. Do good to one another. Exhort one another. Stir one another up to love and good deeds. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Show hospitality to one another. Be humble toward one another. And then there are these other ones expressed as don'ts rather than do's. Don't sue one another. Do not speak evil of one another. Don't grumble against one another. Do not lie to one another. Don't provoke one another. Don't envy one another. And don't pass judgment on one another. So again, let's let these soak in for a second. Think about these. There's some clear themes we see, but... The volume of these admonitions, the clarity, the specific nature of these. Think of how our relationships with one another will look, how we will indeed experience peace and unity in our relationships when we are faithful to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives these one anotherisms. Think of how many of them so clearly strike at our sinful selfishness that's so deeply rooted in us all. Think of how humbling so many of these one anotherisms are, and not just the ones that very specifically admonish humility, but they do so tacitly. Also think about how Jesus was the clearest, purest model of one anotherisms expressed in daily life. Oh, I guess I missed these, sorry. We see in John chapter 13, verses 12 through 15, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example 
that you should do just as I have done to you. Humility. Humility is a key theme in many of these one anotherisms that we see. And we also see that although they use different words, there's a common theme even among the different one anotherisms that we see. We see in Romans chapter 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. We could probably have added another negatively expressed one anotherism based on this verse because of the context where it says in this verse, do not be haughty because the context is living in harmony with one another. That one another is assumed, isn't it? Regarding being haughty, we might say, do not be haughty with one another because that haughtiness is a barrier to harmony. Again, humility is an underlying theme in these passages of Scripture, in many of these very specific one another-isms. We read in Romans chapter 14, verse 13, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. We see humility undergirding the admonition not to pass judgment. When we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. We see humility in the instruction to wait for one another, preferring to allow someone else to go before you. When we read in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, we see not only humility, but again, we see this smack against our selfish nature. Our selfish nature says to us, I have enough problems of my own. I have enough burdens. Why should I be concerned about anybody else? But Paul tells the Galatians here clearly, bear one another's burdens. Again, we see humility and selfishness addressed when we read the one anotherisms in Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, where Paul writes, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. I think we could say that the majority of these one anotherisms address our pride and selfishness and inherent lack of humility. But they also deal with some very practical issues that we see clearly in ourselves and we also see very clearly in the world. Several things have impressed me lately to make me think that we live in a world full of liars. Anybody else been struck with that thought recently? Just several things. You can watch the news. You can watch a lot of different things. Truth-telling is very much in the minority these days, it seems. So how are we as Christians to be different? This one anotherism tells us. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In this verse, we also see another important theme. In Christ, we are new creations. And so we need to put off that old part of us and we need to put on the new self. 
In Ephesians, the same idea is expressed a little differently in the passage that we read at the opening, where Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What's the calling to which you've been called? The new self, isn't it? It's the new self. We'll explore this a little bit further in a few minutes. Another thing we see a lack of in the world is forgiveness. Everybody seems to want their pound of flesh. They want their punishment. They want their idea of justice. Getting even is seen almost as a virtue in our culture. People want to hang on to hurts. And the result is bitterness and it's anger. Anybody here watch the Hatfields and McCoys series on uh, the History Channel? Some of you did. It's hard for me to recommend. The language is pretty bad, but the story is very compelling. It was a dramatic retelling of what is somewhat true to history, as I did a little bit of research, of these famously feuding families in West Virginia and Kentucky. There was hardly a redeeming character in the whole three-part series. But the feud did not end. The blood and the killing didn't stop until someone was willing to forgive. And in the context of that story, that forgiveness cost those doing the forgiving. This is another clear one anotherism that we see in the New Testament, and it's to be a hallmark of how followers of Christ relate to one another. This is in Colossians chapter 3, just a few verses later, 12 through 14. Put on then, as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now according to some sources, and this was depicted actually in the movie, very unexpected if you're watching the movie to see this happen at the very end, the head of the Hatfield clan, Anderson Hatfield, he was known as Devil Ants Hatfield, he was actually baptized late in life. And he was depicted in the story and according to history as the one who actually decided to let go of the offense and forgive for the sake of ending the feud. Though for years he had been one of the instigators in keeping the feud going. One biography said that Hatfield went through a transformation in the later years of his life. He had once said, I belong to no church unless you say that I belong to the one great church of the world. If you like, you can say it is the devil's church that I belong to. But he changed his tune, and he was baptized in 1911. And this change of tune was likely directly related to another, one anotherism we see here in Scripture, forgive one another. Of course, we also see that the overarching one anotherism or the foundational one anotherism is obviously what? Love one another. Pretty much every other one anotherism that we find in Scripture is a practical aspect of loving one another. As I noted a moment ago, I found the phrase love one another at least 14 times in the New Testament more than any other one anotherism. Even in the passage we read a moment ago from Colossians 3, we see that this is the chief foundational one anotherism. It's the root of all the others. Verse 14 says, and above all these, and above all these, put on love, 
which binds everything together in perfect harmony. As we read the many other one another verses in the New Testament, we see very often love combined with or elevated above the other one anotherisms in very specific verses. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, we read, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Love one another is clearly a commandment. We see this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Now, we have to be careful here. We have to recognize something very important, that these one anotherisms are rooted not in our need to be nice people, not in our need to be good people, not in our need even to be moral people. These one anotherisms, and especially the overarching one anotherism of love one another, are all rooted and grounded in the gospel of grace, the love of God, for us. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What comes first? God loved us. Even a closer look back at the passage that began our study this morning shows us pretty clearly that the source of these one anotherisms is the love of God revealed in his gospel of grace. This is pretty important for us to realize because otherwise, all we're doing here this morning by looking at all these one anotherisms is preaching moralism. That's all we're doing. Or we're preaching what one sociologist called moralistic therapeutic deism. Isn't that a mouthful? There's a sociologist named Christian Smith, and he noted this. He wrote, there's a pattern of religious beliefs called moralistic therapeutic deism. And he said teenagers learn these beliefs from adults in their lives. It's the American cultural religion. Teenagers are moralistic in that they believe that God wants us to be good and that the main purpose of religion is to help people be good. But since it is possible to be good without being religious, religion is an optional tool that can be chosen by those who find it helpful. American Christianity is therapeutic in that we believe that God and religion are valuable because they help us feel better about our problems. Finally, American teenagers show their deism in that they believe in a God who remains in the background of their lives, always watching over them, ready to help them, but not at the center of their lives. Now, think about this for a second. The main purpose of some religions may be to help us be good. But for Christians, the purpose of our faith is to save us from our sin. This is important. And to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Anything else, anything else, including our ability to do all these one anotherisms, is a result of this. So let's be careful here. This idea is a little worth thinking about just a little bit more. We see all of these one anotherisms in Scripture. And we might think they're primarily there to help us be good. And maybe at some level, there's a little bit of truth in that. But for the believer in Christ, there's so much more than just that. That's because, you know what? 
Look around. There's a lot of religions that have lists of things that are good to do, and we'd agree with them. They're good things to do. If we succumb to thinking that these are the things that make us Christian, we're missing the gospel. What makes us Christian is the blood of Jesus. Clearly, these one anotherisms are the way we're supposed to behave. But the gospel tells us first, before it tells us anything else, that we cannot be good. It tells us that all have sinned. It tells us we cannot be moral. It tells us we can't consistently and faithfully practice these one anotherisms. We are pathologically incapable of these things without Christ. And you might say, well, but Bill, a lot of people who don't believe in God do these good things, at least sometimes. And of course, that's true. But I would contend that even unbelievers do these good things because the grace of God is at work in them too, whether they recognize it as the grace of God or not. It's what some theologians have called common grace. But you know what? Common grace is just that. It's common. It's different, and it's much less powerful than the grace by which we are saved and sanctified in Christ, which first and foremost saves us from sin and death. And then, as we're sanctified, it does in fact equip us to practice these one anotherisms. So let's go back for a second to the passage we read at the outset, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, where Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Thus far, we've focused on the one anotherisms and the resulting unity and peace that they bring to the body of Christ. But what's Paul saying to us here? What he's saying, first and foremost, is live up to who you are in Christ, who you are called to be. God says, this is who I invited you to be. This is who we are meant to be in Christ. And why is this? Not just because of what comes before these verses, but what comes after. So we're going to take just a few seconds and look at what comes after, and then we're going to look at what comes before. Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, immediately following these verses on the screen. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And it's always a good practice when you see the word therefore, as we see in Ephesians chapter 4, 1, to determine what the word therefore is therefore. So to do that, we have to see what's preceding these verses, and we have to go back to chapter 3 of Ephesians. And I want to go all the way back to Ephesians 3.14, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. So bear with me for a moment. This is immediately what precedes what Paul writes here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints 
what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is sort of a doxology, isn't it? A prayer of praise to God for what he has accomplished in us in Christ. Paul is laying the doctrinal foundation for the words that follow. The doctrine is that he is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. Would that include, you think, some of these one anotherisms? The doctrine is that it is his power that is in work within us. The doctrine is that it is his glory. It's for his glory. The doctrine Paul wants us to understand is the love of Christ. He wants us to understand the gospel of grace. He wants us to be rooted and grounded in that love and strengthened with power through his spirit. And then, after all this, Paul writes to us in the beginning of chapter 4, therefore, in other words, because these things I've just told you are true, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. The calling is to the kingdom. It's not a calling to be nice, moral people. That should be a result, but it's not the calling. The calling is not of works, it tells us in the complete word study dictionary, but of the sovereign grace of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, holy in the effect of that calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given in Christ Jesus before times eternal. The call which thus comes from God is in Christ and through the gospel to the fellowship of his Son, to freedom, not for uncleanness, but in sanctification, to eternal life, to holiness, as he which hath called you is holy. So Paul is exhorting the church to unity, and he's including in this path to unity these one anotherisms. But it must be, it must be based on the truth of God's saving grace in Christ. When Paul writes here of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, what peace is here is a state of reconciliation and love, and therefore it acts as a bond to unite believers in Christ. Believers do not create unity, but are to preserve the unity that's already been established. One anotherisms must be based in the already established gospel of grace. They must be a response to the gospel, not an appeal to be moral and good by our own efforts, or to be moral and good just for the sake of being moral and good. Otherwise, if that was the case, Christians are just people, just like the nice Muslims, like the nice atheists, like the nice Buddhists, or the nice Jews, instead of being an unworthy, sinful people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Lives have been redeemed and then changed more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. The main purpose of Christianity is not to make us good people. That's a benefit, and it's a lifelong result of the process of his sanctifying us. 
but Christ came to save sinners like me. Consequently, we see what Paul's therefore is therefore. It's referring back to his clear exposition of the gospel of grace to the Ephesians in the previous chapters. All of this is written before the urging that he gives us in Ephesians 4.1 to walk according to this grace calling of God. Has it ever occurred to you, wrote A.W. Tozer, that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each looking to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. So what's our standard here? What's our standard? The standard we look to is the gospel. It's the grace of God. Motivation matters. Why we do things matters. These one another is these one anotherisms that we spent quite a bit of time looking at this morning, they do matter, but why we do them matters too. God looks at our heart. Why do we practice these one anotherisms? We practice them because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Otherwise, nothing, it becomes nothing more than moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's just another self-help program designed to make us nice people. Christianity is so much more than that. What it is is God's plan established before the foundation of the world to rescue hopelessly lost human beings from sin and death. God loved us, so we love one another. And we practice all these additional one another-isms that flesh out that love in practical and selfless ways. It's all a grateful response and a witness to his uh, watching world and a witness of his love for us. Amen? Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of God. We thank you, Father, for the blood of Jesus that washes us from sin. And Father, we thank you that you've called us to a holy calling. You've called us to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. And that manner worthy of that calling includes all these one anotherisms, Lord. But help us to remember clearly where it all starts. It starts with you, Lord. It starts with your love. We love you because you first loved us. Help us to respond to you because you first loved us. Help us to practice these one anotherisms with each other because you first loved us. Help us, Father, to, to uh, do all these things, Lord, not because we want to be nice people, but because we are responding to the gospel of your grace, Lord, the grace by which we are saved. We're grateful for this, Lord. And we commit this time to you. Help us to ponder these things as we go. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.